When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. All right, Bob's up next, and it'll be Dolores and Buddy. Good morning, Bob. Hello. Hi there. Uh, a couple of things. First of all, on the KTSA website, there does not appear to be any downloadable pro- uh, podcast files since Sunday, October 28th. You know, maybe I'll put you back on hold when we finish our conversation, and you can ask Chris about that. He he probably knows more than I do. Um, I come into this radio station for three and a half hours on Saturday and four hours on Sunday, and I believe me, I have a I have several full time jobs, and Uh, and I challenged by some of us. Well, yes, and I am definitely not a techie, but I'll I'll let Chris tell you what the situation is on the podcast and things because I just don't know. Okay. Second thing is dirt dauberness. Now that you and John Dromgul and Howard Garrett have gotten me not to freak out over what the mud daubers and like, uh, paper wash, mm-hmm. I'm curious: do those uh, insects reuse the nest? The, no, you know the mud. Huh? No, no, they do not. You may see um, uh, dirt daubers rarely survive. The adult dirt dauber doesn't survive over the winter months. And the benefit to the dirt daubers is that, uh, you know, they, and it's good and bad, they eliminate a lot of spiders, including black widows and brown recluse. Um, spiders, in many cases, are our friends in the garden. They kind of freak me out. I'd rather deal with a rattlesnake than a big spider. But it's, uh, uh, the, that, that's what they are doing. They actually paralyze the spiders, stuff those, little mud cells full of them lay an egg in there and that's what nourishes that larvae as it grows but it's a one-time only thing there your wasps uh late in the season you will have uh uh the queens that are going to in effect as it were we call them queens if there are bees i'm not sure what we call them as wasps but um the fertilized females that will be starting the colonies next spring over winter, wherever they can find a little warm space under a bit of old bark or, you know, I sometimes find them in a wood pile. But um, they, you'll occasionally see them go back to the old nest and it's just like, hey, I just came out of hibernation. I'm going to go check out the old home place. But they all go off to uh, to make new nests. Now, I have occasionally seen yellow jackets in particular build a second nest on top of the first nest. Um, and so that's possible, but they do not reuse those paper cells that they create. Okay, so it's okay in wintertime to just clean them off the house. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And if for some reason you don't want them building on the eaves in places, 
paint the eaves with a light blue paint. Um, right. You know, I the paint blue uh, or yeah, like paint that, yeah. blue. I in in the old days before I started doing that, and uh, uh, Malcolm Beck walked around. I've got a balcony around three sides upstairs on my home, and a porch around three sides downstairs. And I think Malcolm counted like a hundred and sixty wasp nests uh, between those two places. I just decided I'd rather have them build in the barn, and I've got barn this bigger than my house and many outbuildings, so I've got lots of places for them to build. I like having the paper wasps around, but I tell you, since I painted with a haint blue color, if I get one or two nests a year, that's all I ever see on there. Okay. Interesting stuff. Uh, let's see, one extra question. Uh, you talked about using honey and hummingbird feeders. Right. I thought I had heard that uh, you shouldn't use the honey. You know, I I can't say that I have ever done it. I'll defer to, uh, I'll call my friend uh, Wild Bill out at Wild Birds Unlimited at some point. Uh, I don't know any reason that you couldn't use the honey because obviously in nature, you know, hummingbirds don't feel it, feed on uh uh, sugar <laughs> they don't there's no refined right. sugar out there and they are in effect getting a nectar uh, honey is antimicrobial right. but i'm i'm not aware of any problem it creates for the hummingbirds but i could be totally wrong on that so okay. uh, um i'll do my best yeah, just, later today or tomorrow to call uh bill <laughs> and if you want to call them the number of wild birds limit unlimited is uh 210 uh let's see it's 457 bird and uh, but I'll I'll try to call Bill and ask the same question. But I don't know of anything wrong with honey in a hummingbird feeder. But uh, okay. again, I'll check it out for sure. Okay, well, that's all then. Thank you, sir. You have a great day. Thanks for the call, Bob. Appreciate it. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye. All right, back to gardening. And, Bob, if you're still there, I just talked to Chris, and he was telling me that the station has is switched. Uh, the way they do the podcast and the podcast are available to listen at KTSA.com. But right now, uh, the newer ones are not downloadable. I don't know if that's going to change or not. So, um, you can, uh, you can listen in effect on your computer. You can listen. Uh, am I saying it right, Chris? That you can go to KTSA.com and even all the way up to last week, those are, you know, podcasts. They are available to listen to. But for whatever reason, and once again, this is over my head, but uh, uh, just for whatever reason, at this point, they are not downloadable, but they certainly are available if you want to listen. So I hope that helps you. Uh, if not, you can call back next time we've got an open line, and uh, Chris will be my engineer that answers, and he's a heck of a lot smarter than I am. Uh, looks like we're going to talk to uh, Doug, to Dolores and Buddy and Lois, and Dolores is next. Good morning, Dolores. Good morning. Good morning. I got a question about a, a weed. Okay. <laughs> uh, what do you have any idea what it's called? It's a. It looks like a geranium leaf. Mm-hmm. It makes a huge uh, crawls on the ground. It grows up. It's a very invasive. It, I don't know what it is. It is probably actually in the geranium family or the pelargonium family. Um, I have to think real hard, but, but you could probably accurately call it a wild geranium. It blooms and then it makes a little seed pod that has a real long pointed thing that sticks out from it. And, um, 
Um, I would have to, I'll probably have to go back and look it up to tell you what the name is, but, but your description of it is very accurate and it is actually related to the geraniums. And if you look at the little flower, typically it's a little lavender flower. It forms in a lot of ways. It looks like a, it looks like a geranium. I have never seen a bloom on them and they've been coming back every year. Well, they're not big flowers. They're about the size of a dime. But, um, oh, shoot, it's too early in the morning. My brain just isn't fishing that uh, name out from uh, from memory. I'll probably think of it as soon as we hang up. But uh, it is, they are perennial. They do come back both from seed and from that little thickened stem that they form. And, um, I, you know, you can get out and spray them with vinegar and orange oil. You can do something like a push-pull hoe. Are they coming up in your garden? Are they coming up in your lawn? Where are they appearing? everywhere <laughs> okay Guard, well on. they're they're one of those things that you know half the world considers them a wildflower the other half considers them a weed um they typically do uh, come out a little bit m- earlier than most of your lawn grasses especially your bermudas come out so you can probably spray in the spring with a vinegar and orange oil mix if you like you probably have to do it more than once but uh, it's uh, you you can get rid of them, but actually, if you keep them mowed off, if you fertilize and put a little compost on the grass, uh, most varieties of grass will eventually choke them out. But they're they're not really they're not really a problem. Your healthy grass will overcome them, and I guess they can be a little bit of a nuisance if you don't like them. But I'm sure not going to put them up there along with uh, nut sedge or sticker burrs or some of those other things which you really definitely want to be rid of. Cranesbill is the okay. name I'm trying to think of. Look up Cranesbill. Crane, C-R-A-N-E. Just popped into my head because that's what that little seed looks like. But look up Cranesbill, and I think you'll see that's what you're looking at. Cranes, V-I-L-L-E? No, C-R-A-N-E, Cranesbill, B-I-L-L. Bill. Oh. Yeah. Okay, I will check that. Oh, they're beautiful plants, but they just take over everything. uh, (laughs) They are a very successful weed. If you keep them mowed off, they generally, you'll you'll keep them under control. But uh, um, they, left to their own devices, they they would love to spread out over a big area, that's for sure. (laughs) All right, thank you very much. You're sure welcome. Check out Cranes Bill. I think that's what you're looking at. All right, thank you. You're sure welcome. Gee, I hope it's just that uh, I have so much stuff stuffed into my head. Sometimes it uh, takes a minute to get it to the surface. But, yeah, that's exactly what she's looking at. Uh, let's say good morning to Buddy. How are you doing this morning, Buddy? I'm doing great, Bob. Good. Uh, I'm the guy that uh, told you that the squirrels got a ride from San Antonio came to the radio. Oh, okay. And we didn't put a welcome sign. You know, they're like, uh, they're just little hitchhikers that go where they want to go and pay no attention to, uh, you know, to our, shall we say, our immigration policies. We have to make fun of a lot of stuff that's going on, but... Uh, well, they haven't gone to the Royal Radar yet. Yeah, but they'll go right over a wall, so don't don't be thinking you're going to stop them that way. <laughs> Let me tell you the problem I have. Yes, sir. I have a wrench uh, by Intonel. Okay. And uh, honeybee showed up. Uh-huh. And so I call this guy that picks them up every year. I mean, when they show up. Right. Uh, I called him, and he says he moved out of town. He says, I can't help you. I don't know anybody in the radio to pick up the bees. Is there any way I can pick up the bees or the honeybees? Or can, what can I do? 
and why do you want to uh, why do you want to get rid of them? <laughs> They're in my kitchen. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. My, and I got a little kid that's two years old, my okay. grandson. Yep, yep. Um, I I wouldn't suggest trying to relocate a colony. I'll tell you why in just a second. But there are various things that are highly repellent to the bees. The bees hate the smell of garlic, for instance. And you can actually buy a garlic liquid spray. It's actually a very good fungicide. It's uh, very good to get rid of aphids and things like that. And you may be able to, uh, you know, to just spray around and simply you know, drive them out, get them to go somewhere else. There may be some other products. Um, I tell you what, I'm going to make a note for 8 o'clock hour when I talk to uh, Howard Garrett to ask him, you know, what he would know um, if he would have any idea about ways to repel the bees. The, The problem is that, you know, we've gotten so many of the bees, especially the further south you go, that have... Uh, become have uh, gotten the Africanized gene uh-huh. into them, and when we see a bee out working in the garden, you wouldn't know whether it was an Africanized bee or stradal European honeybee because their behavior is exactly the same. They do the same thing. Their social habits are the same. The big difference is that if you disturb a colony of regular honeybees they'll get a little upset but they're you know they, they, you might get stung a time or two but it's not a real big deal the africanized bees you disturb their hive and you've got hundreds or thousands of bees intent on stinging you and this is where people and pets are occasionally killed by these things so if 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 these were indeed just regular honeybees, yeah, you could get one of the little beekeeper suits or whatever and, uh, you know, take out the portion of the comb that has the queen active and, and, you know, in effect, relocate them. But if it is an indeed an Africanized quality, I'm, you know, other than my yeah. worst enemies, I'm not going to suggest that they get out and deal with them. So at this I'm, point, I'm buddy, a good, I'm a good friend of yours. Yes, indeed, and I, I want you to. I want you to stay that way, and I want you to stay comfortable. So I would be working at a bee repellent rather than actually. Uh, now, there. Um, do you ever come up to the rodeo? Which yes, is coming I'll be up. up there next week. I mean, well, stop by through uh, the Texas Department of Agriculture tent. It's uh-huh. usually a very interesting display. I used to actually broadcast over there, but then they closed down the the San Antonio office of a lot of things they do. But the um, the Alamo Area Beekeepers Association normally has a demonstration hive set up in there, and there frequently is somebody manning it. And if you will get in touch with those guys, I mean, they have a tremendous network of beekeepers all over this part of Texas, and they may uh-huh. be able to tell you somebody in your area that would come and remove that colony for you. But in the meantime, I'm just going to tell you it's not a do-it-yourself job, but the repellency, okay, uh, that, that probably would work pretty well for you. I appreciate it. Let me ask you one more question. Yes, sir. Uh, I ran into a tree here in the radial, and it's about uh, 12, 13 feet tall. Okay. And it's co- the trunk is completely green. I mean, it, that's the tree. Uh, it's it, The bark is completely green. What uh-huh. kind of a tree is it? Does it have some thorns on it? No. Okay. Uh, and what do I'm the leaves look like? Are they very feathery or are they very large no, leaves? No, they're very smooth. And they're not, they're medium large. 
but the whole tree is Greek, completely all the limbs, all the trunk, all the way to the ground. I, I've never seen a tree like this, and I took a picture of it. I said, wow, I've never seen a tree like this. Well, the common native tree is what they call Rotama or Parkinsonia is its botanical name, but they have yellow flowers in the spring, but they do have not big thorns, but they have little thorns all over them. So that's the most common smooth green bark tree out there. There is another ornamental tree. Uh, It actually is a bit of a weed, but not a real bad thing, but it's called the Japanese varnish tree. I'd have to look up the botanical name of it, but it has a super smooth bark on it. And uh, it is super smooth. Yeah. And it's about six inches in in diameter, eight inches. And is it a real, is it a real woody tree? Is it a real hardwood? Uh, Yes, I would say it is. Or softwood, maybe. Okay. Uh, It's over the fence and I just took a picture and I can't get to it. (laughs) Okay. Uh, It (laughs) may be. Yeah, there's another one that's called ironwood. And um, you would know the difference if you ever tried to cut it. The Japanese varnish tree is, you know, you cut that thing with a little hacksaw. The ironwood, you'll you'll dull the chain on a chainsaw cutting that stuff. Uh, but it's uh, th- those are two possibilities. But the ironwood has a very small leaf. Japanese varnish tree has a very big leaf. But uh, watching this, yeah. Um, I gosh, I that's the best I can do right now. I'll do a little further digging and see what I find. But down where you are, uh, um, it doesn't really fit either category. But look up Japanese varnish tree and see if it's anything like that. Okay, well, I, I know Mike and Mark, so I'm going to go take them the picture. Sounds like a good thing. <laughs> hey, well, have a good day. And don't send any more squirrels. we got enough of them now. Well, I'll just I'll send them to North Texas instead of South Texas. How's that? <laughs> I, uh, that's great. great idea. Have Buddy. a great day, and I really thank you for everything. Uh, it's always a pleasure. Thank you for the call this morning. I appreciate it. I'll say good morning, Lois. Good morning. I, good morning. Good morning, Hi. Lois. Um, this is probably a real simple question for you, but my backyard, I live in a subdivision, so I mm-hmm. don't live in the country, um, is just been taken over with weeds i mean normally i can go out there and you know pull them up and and everything but this is the entire backyard what can i spray on that to not kill the saint augustine how is your has your saint augustine turned brown for the winter no Mm. it never does okay it always yeah i'm i've got kind of a elevated backyard and for some reason it kind of retains moisture and okay. so no the grass looks pretty good <laughs> okay left. it's just thank goodness for all the the rain the weeds are absolutely loving it right. there is not a yeah. product that will kill bad grass and not harm good grass they you know just they they're not smart enough to make something especially something safe that will do that but okay. um, your lawnmower is your best weed control to begin with. And St. Augustine is our absolute toughest, hardiest grass out there. And when St. Augustine is healthy, it will choke out every weed known to man, including Bermuda grass. St. Augustine is just going to win every time if it's getting the nutrition it needs, if it's getting the water it needs. And sometimes the weeds grow so fast, you just have to mow them down to be sure plenty of light gets to your St. That's Augustine. That's what's going to happen. Yeah, that's yep. what's going to happen today is they're going to be mowed down. But these are those big ones that are like 
lettuce. You know what I'm talking about, the like the lettuce well, patches that have the <laughs> yellow flower. Yeah, right those there. are mainly dandelions. And yeah. yeah, they are, you know, and and when you look at how many jillion seeds, however many a jillion is, that's how many seeds dandelions make. I'm quite sure of it. But um, right. uh, if you will simply keep them mowed down, if you will, maybe for a couple of years, fertilize four times a year, any good organic fertilizer, your St. Augustine will get so thick that the dandelion simply won't have a chance. Oh. Okay. Now, when we get okay. the year, and a lot of folks where their lawns are a little more exposed, their St. Augustine is turned brown, and people that have basically zoysia or Bermuda grass, their yards are totally brown right now, and spraying with that vinegar-orange oil mix, you can do that and safely kill the weeds without hurting the grass because it's brown and dormant. But your St. Augustine okay. so happy it's staying green through the winter, so there's yeah. just not a safe spray you can use um, but now if you want to go around and just spot spray uh, with the vinegar and orange oil, it might burn a few leaves, but it's not going to do serious damage. But I'm serious. If if you will, uh, you know, mow regularly um, this okay. time of year, probably every 10 days or so, you will knock those things down. You'll stop a lot of the seeds. And your St. Augustine is quite capable of choking out dandelions on its own. Okay. And just so I have it, I've heard it a million times on your show but what's first of all can i get the orange oil like i'm real close to millburgers i'm think sure they, they have, have it. it i'm sure they have okay. it the best out there is packaged by uh, uh medina and they have it in pints okay. and in quarts and uh okay. they certainly should if for some reason they don't go over to rainbow gardens out there on thousand oaks oh and, okay and they'll okay. have it for sure okay and uh the mixture is is on the bottle then it tells you how much no not is. really but it's real easy to a gallon of vinegar okay. and get the strongest vinegar you can if you get into the grocery store you want to get what they call pickling vinegar uh the nine okay. percent and it's just two ounces or two jiggers if you prefer to think of it that way two jiggers of orange okay. oil to a gallon of vinegar no water added just maybe a little bit of dish soap and uh it'll create something that works just like roundup but it's much much safer and works 10 times as fast Oh, cool. And then mix that with the orange oil. Yeah, well, yeah, just your, your orange oil, your vinegar, and then just a little squirt of dish okay. soap in there, and you're ready to go. Okay. Thank you so much, Bob. Always a pleasure. It's good to talk to you. Thank you. Okay. okay. <laughs> Bye-bye. All right, let's get James on. Good morning, James. Morning, Bob. How you doing? You know, it's just going to be a, a nice weekend. Uh, I look around the country and see what most folks are going through, and I think, man, I'm not going to complain about 30s in the morning or low 40s. This is this is a pretty good winter. You know, the weather reports, uh, they're serving it with a lot of wine lately. <laughs> uh, everybody's whining, man. Yeah, if yep. you live in Nebraska, you, you know what's coming down the pike, man. <laughs> yeah, it is. We, we we live in a world of complainers and whiners, don't we? Man, I tell you what, you know, get out of town, man. Move to Texas. Oh no, 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 no. That's a horrible idea. Move to Florida or move to California. We we need to send some of their problems back that way, but uh we uh we need to slow down we need to slow down that influx of northerners with some of their strange ideas. But uh yeah, we'll send them east and west. How's that? Oh better weather, that's what you need. Yes, hey, sir. I was listening to your uh, caller 
that uh, had bees in his wall. Right. And uh, sometimes you can call your local sheriff, and he's got some numbers of bee guys. But uh, you know, that's a good idea too. The wall, we, me and my cousin did bee removal for a couple of summers, and uh, you either got to do a cone out, you have to tear the wall apart, or you have to exterminate them. We yep. were charging two hundred and fifty to get them out of the wall. Yeah. But the exterminators were only charging 100 so that's <laughs> what they usually did. Well, and that's how you get them out. And all, all they're doing, and I mean, if you just wanted to kill them out, you can drill a hole in the wall and, you know, stick one of those room foggers in there. But um, I'd, I would rather remove them or, you know, find a way to make them go somewhere else, just like you do. When they're in the wall, you've, you've got to get to them. Yep. And that's... You can imagine what that's all about. Well, I had them in my attic one time, so I know exactly what you're talking about. And then once they built comb and stored honey, that that space needs to be filled up with uh, something because yep. they'll be back next year. It's it's a nightmare. I got out of that work. <laughs> left it to the exterminators, and I'm an organic grower. Yeah, well, I'm with you, and... Uh, it certainly, especially when you're down on the border where he was, is not a do-it-yourself product because uh, down there, much higher percentage of those colonies are going to be Africanized, and you don't want to do that. Yeah, that's a fact. Well, the feral bees are, I don't know if they're worse, but they're just as bad, man. They beat me up all the time. Yep. I've got uh, the pelletized Nancy's carrot seed just come in from Johnny's. <laughs> Very I good. The, the, the raised bed is all ready to go. And I wanted to ask you what you thought about the first week in February for uh, seeding uh, the early carrots. You know, I haven't really looked at the moon signs, but if it, uh, do you plant by the moon or you do plant when you have the time to plant? Okay. Are you familiar with John Javon's work? No, I'm not. Okay, you, your buddy up there in Austin, uh, John Google, John Google yeah. is, is a friend of, of John. And they developed a, a moon planting system uh-huh. from way back when. And that's the one I use. Well, if it's, you know, if you're fitting into the phase of the moon, um, yeah, I, I think it's a, according to the calendar, I think this is an excellent time for carrot planting. And, uh, I, you know, the schedule that I keep, the meetings and the many obligations I have, I plant when I can, and I hate to say that because I, I do believe in planting by the moon, but I can't say that I always do that because sometimes if I, uh, the dates when it's right to plant by the moon or the dates that I don't, I can't work out in the garden. So uh, if you're following that, I this is certainly the the time of year to get your carrot started, that's for sure. Okay, well, the new moon in February is just about, right so i was wondering what you, what you thought about it and you said that uh, now it's time to get the early carrots started oh i think so absolutely um some of my students were asking about we did planting carrots from pellets 101 yesterday uh-huh and they i recommended that they before they even plant they get a little uh, uh piece of uh that frost cloth yep. cover the beds just in case. Are you recommending? Oh, absolutely. Covering them seedlings. Absolutely. I well, and I'm 
you know, it's not just the frost, it's the wind. When you get the kind of wind we've had a few days, those poor little seedlings, if they're getting, if they're out in the open, they're going to get dehydrated by that wind, whether they get too cold or not. And that frost cloth is going to protect you two ways. It's going to cut down the wind and also stop the frost. So, yes, I think it's a great idea, uh, not just for carrots, but for radishes, beets, turnips, uh, any tender seedlings. It takes them a while to harden off, as you well know. Hey, Bob, after those beds are prepared and raked and ready, fertilized and ready to go, um, we take a piece of pipe and lay it on the row and press it down and then take it off, and it leaves a little furrow for yeah. those carrots. Yeah, I heard you say that last week. That's a great idea. Oh, man, it works great. And then you put those little white pellets in there, and you can space them just perfect. It's real nice. But Malcolm used to tell us, uh, especially on, you know, well, he'd like to do it on tomatoes, but root crops need a lot of phosphorus. So I like to dust those little furrows with some soft rock phosphate before I cover them up with uh, screen compost. And I think that's fine. Uh, the problem, of course, with uh, all the phosphorus products is that it tends to get tied up. And, you know, dusting may or may not. Um, I would tend to just put a little band of it in the bottom of the furrow and plant on top of it myself. Well, you can't plant them white. You can't plant those <laughs> white pellet seeds on top of that. You, you can't put, see them. Yeah. No, you got to do the soft rock, rock phosphate uh, second. After yeah, you I get the seeds in the furrow. Yeah, I would tend to just put a pinch of it out. Is what I do, James, rather than actually dust it. Because again, if you get it spread spread through the soil, and that's another that's another thing Malcolm did that didn't work out. Well, I'm, I misspoke. I, I said dusting. I I just go down that little uh, three quarter inch furrow and just try to get some on the carrot seed. Yeah. I don't. No, I, I think you're. Bed. I think you're great doing that. Yeah, I've got a question. Uh, carrot question for you. Um, the carrot bed is in production in the in the spring, and then it's in the production just about all winter. And during uh, flaming hot uh, summer, it's just composted and covered with leaves and then watered every once in a while uh that soil is really rich in there so i'm not really worried about diseases because i i monocrop carrots in that raised bed all right. the time right but i haven't noticed any you know anything wrong well, I you know, carrots don't have a lot of disease problems. Now, carrots, as you well know, are very susceptible to root-knot nematodes. But where you've got all that organic material in the soil, some of those natural fungi are going to are gonna knock out those root-knot nematodes. That's, uh, oh, you know, and again, it was old Malcolm that showed us that, that, uh, that some of these fungi produce a long strand that forms what looks like little croquet wickets in the soil and they trap and destroy those root knot nematodes so i you know I'd, obviously you've got a system that works but i i sure wouldn't change any anything you're doing there that summer mulch with a uh, little compost and then a whole bunch mm -hmm. of leaves seems to once you once you peel that back man there's all kinds of uh, uh that fungi that you just spoke about right all over all over the soil surface and in that leaf litter it's it's just uh oh mother 
mass. Yeah, it's a it's it's well we call them hyphae or mycelium is what we call the the body structure so to speak of these multi-cell fun, fungi. Some of the some fungus is uh, the individual species are single cell organisms. In fact, that's what makes up a whole lot more of what's out there. But the multi-cell ones make up that mycelium that can spread. You know, just all over the place and a lot of people look at that and they've just been conditioned to think oh if this fungus has got to be bad but that's some of the best stuff out there so yeah you're you know experience uh, is a real good teacher and when you've got a successful system going uh the most important thing to know is that it works and then if you have an inquiring mind uh, like you and i do we try to figure out why it's working so well but uh that that summertime mulch is exactly what it's all about Sometimes if you get the beds too fertile, you'll get kind of a fuzzy, hairy carrot, but those eat just fine, too. <laughs> Close your eyes and enjoy. Okay, well, I hope I bored everybody to death about carrots. I, I just wanted to talk to you about them this morning. Well, I'm glad you did, because carrots are one of those things that most everybody loves, but a lot of people don't grow them successfully, and uh, you do it you do it every year, and we just always appreciate you taking the time to share with us. Okay, you guys have fun in the garden, and thanks for taking my call, Bob. Always a pleasure, James. We'll talk again soon. And I'll bring up Jim next, then it'll be Darren. Good morning, Jim. Morning. Morning, sir. Yeah, um, I want to ask a question about I grew a, uh, a citrus tree from seedling. I found it underneath a satsuma. Okay. Uh, and I put it in a pot, and then I put it in the ground. It's like 15 feet tall now. I finally got some fruit from it. Maybe three years ago. Very and good. Strange thing. Strange thing is, it's not a satsuma. It's sort of like a cross between. It's not as easy to peel. It has a lot of seeds. It's mm-hmm. bell shaped, and I was just wondering if I take the seeds from that fruit, can, will I grow <laughs> the same plant, or is it? You don't know what you're going to get. No, sir. You don't know what you're going to get because, you know. We all, you know, our genes are what make us who we are. Genes, you know, determine the protein production, determine, you know, all of our developmental features. And that's true for plants just as it is, you know, for animals. And when you grow something from a seed, again, whether it's an animal or a plant, you've combined millions of genes from the male parent, so to speak, and millions of genes from the female parent. And the the combinations are just, you know, unbelievably diverse, how many different things you can get. If you And, you know, I've grown orchids for years. Sometimes an orchid seed pod can have a million seed in it, and every single one of those million seeds is a little bit different from all of the other ones. So when you're growing from seed, and this is, you know, this is what happened. I can almost promise you one of the parents in that seed was something called the Changsha, uh, which is a little satsuma that is full of seeds. And if it, it certainly inherited that characteristic, if you've got a fruit full of seeds, but it, Uh the, the other parent could have been any one of a wide range of citrus. And now that you've got this, um, Oh, heterozygous uh, allele combination, Uh, even if the plant becomes self-pollinated, your chances of getting, uh, you know, something exactly like the parent, it it just doesn't happen. Now, you may get 80% of the seedlings 
are going to be very similar to the parent. But the problem is you've got to grow that plant for seven or eight years before it starts producing fruit, whether you will know whether it's just like the parent or not. So it's mm-hmm. that's that's why these guys that develop the new hybrids sometimes patent them uh, i mean they deserve to get a little something out of that process because they've spent a lot of years developing some of these new varieties and you and i can do it for fun but um long answer to a short question the chances of you're getting something genetically identical are just one in ten million your chances of getting something that's similar are probably 50 50 Okay, so if I, let's say I root from a cutting, mm-hmm. is that, will I get pretty much the same thing? If you I get exactly, you'll get exactly the okay. same thing because you've got exactly the same genetic makeup. Right. Now, here's the problem with rooting citrus from a cutting in that when you root citrus from a cutting, you get a lateral root growth. These little roots grow out to the side, and your seedling is mm-hmm. pretty fragile. It's going to be a couple of years before you can be sure that it won't you know, blow over and break in a big wind. That's the main reason that most citrus is grafted, is they grafted onto mm-hmm. a seedling plant, which has produced a taproot. And so you've got a much, much stronger plant. But citrus will grow from cuttings, and as so long as you protect that plant for the first couple of years until it really gets a real heavy root system developed, um, you know, it's it just, they just start out a little bit wimpier than they do from seeds or from grafted plants. But, I mean, the other thing you could do is grow out a whole bunch of seeds, but then graft, uh, you know, from your existing tree onto those little seedlings. And now we've got the best of both worlds. You've got genetically similar plants to begin with, but you've got that taproot that's going to give you a stronger plant. So uh, cuttings, grafting, budding, all of these things you are using the same original plant. So except for that one in a billion mutation, you're going to have exactly the same genetics that the parent had, and you'll get exactly the same fruit. And you won't have to wait. Okay. That's the thing. Even if your yeah. cutting is very tiny, the cells in that cutting are, are sexually mature, as it were. And that tree, as soon as it's uh, big enough to have a flower, you know, you can produce fruit. It's none of the waiting for it to mature. Okay, great. Thank you. Thanks very much. It's my pleasure. Good luck with it. And <laughs> sounds like you're having some fun and you've got uh, you've got a good fruit as long as you don't mind spitting a few seeds. Well, no, I just juice them and it's really a great taste. I mean, it's oh, yeah. like a cross between a grapefruit and an orange and it's tangy and I love it. So I just juice them and, you know. Well, get yourself a bunch of seedlings started. In this case, I would consider, you know, propping or supporting those things for the first year or two. But sounds like you've got something really neat. Share it with your friends and get everybody growing a little bit of it. So uh, we'll per- yeah. perpetuate. And uh, you can even put your own name on it. It is a unique hybrid. And uh, you can call it James Wonder or James Favorite or whatever you like. And, uh, <laughs> and anyway, good luck with it. And uh, I appreciate you giving me a call this morning. All right. Thank you. Thank you, Jim. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.